Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 63 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. Today's episode of the podcast, I'm joined by the legendary Stanley Drucker, who is of course the former principal clarinetist of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, a position he held for over 60 years. During his time with the orchestra, Stanley also maintained a busy schedule as a chamber musician and recitalist. He could of course be found performing at illustrious venues like Carnegie Hall, but you might be surprised to learn that he also performed quite often at venues such as churches and school auditoriums, which are places of course where you might not expect to find one of the world's greatest musicians. Today, our conversation focuses on this element of Stanley's work, and most notably the release of an exciting new 5-CD set called the Heritage Collection. This collection features live recordings made at many different venues, recorded over a 30-year span from the early 1970s to the mid-2000s. Stanley is joined in performance by world-class chamber ensembles such as the Juilliard String Quartet, and of course his wonderful wife Naomi Drucker joins him on one track per CD. Uh, She's also an accomplished clarinetist in her own right, and I'm thrilled to say that she, after my interview with Stanley today, joins me for a brief conversation of her own. If you'll be at this year's Clarinet Fest in Orlando, Florida, make sure to head to booth 419 where you can purchase copies of this new Heritage Collection. And Stanley will actually be on site at specific times to personalize and sign copies. Of course, he'll also be performing a feature concert at the event, which you don't want to miss. As a Clarinet listener, whether or not you can make it to Clarinet Fest, you can actually purchase a signed copy of the album until August 18th, 2017 by heading to digitalforce.com slash clarinet. I'll be including a link to this along with detailed show notes for today's episode at www.clarinet.com. Before we get started today, I'd like to thank all Patreon supporters for helping make the show possible every week, and particularly our latest three supporters, Laura A., Josh N., and Justin P. Thank you so much for making the Clarinet podcast possible, and of course, I'd like to also thank our sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Stanley Drucker. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. I'm here today with the legendary Stanley Drucker. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Stanley. Pleasure, Sean. First of all, congratulations on this absolutely wonderful collection of music. Thank you very much. Uh, Jerry Bunky did a great job. 
compiling all of this, and uh, he deserves a lot of credits for that. For those who aren't aware, this is a collection of music that's all sort of uh, live set settings, and the settings are not what you might expect for, for someone like yourself. What were some of the venues like when you recorded this back in the day for these pieces? You're absolutely right. It could have been a school auditorium or, or, or a large open area in a building, or, or it could be a library. Or in one case, it was a wonderful chamber music hall in Tokyo. What's interesting and unique, I think, about this set is that all the performances are live. They're, they're not studio recordings. They were just as they were played for an audience. Uh, and uh, it covers a period, a long period of of time, of years, you know, for this set. And uh, it, it sort of stoked a lot of memories for me over the years because uh, I, I guess I was always pretty much in motion <laughs> yeah. to, uh, to play all of these things and then do the uh, kind of rehearsal and concert schedule that we had uh, with, the, with the orchestra. Uh, the, the reproduction of these uh, pieces uh, on these discs is, is, is remarkable. I, I was amazed when I listened. Uh, they, they, was, they were really present. It's so, it's so funny to me, too, because the performance is just excellent. And I found myself, for example, the Poulonk, you know, halfway through, there'd be a little bit of auditorium sound or maybe someone would cough or something. And I had to remind sure. myself that these were live performances. That, that's true. And, and there's a mix of, of, of uh, periods of music. Oh, we have old music and, and middle and, and new. Uh, I, I feel that uh, this represents uh, a lifetime of work, I think. It's amazing. How did you find the time to do all this amidst your incredibly busy orchestral career, which, you know, in itself would have been remarkable? Well, you know... <laughs> You left out the fact that I commuted also. <laughs> I, yes. I, I lived 40 miles from uh, from Carnegie Hall or uh, Avery Fisher and now Geffen Hall. The entire time? And, uh, yes. Wow. And, and uh, uh, so I did uh, have to add the time of commuting into anything I did. But, you know, I'd say that uh, in that group of years, any, any player... Uh, in that group of years, it never says no to anything. You know, you're always rehearsing something or playing somewhere. Is, does that still hold true today, do you think, for young players or, or players anywhere, just to sort of take everything as it comes? My advice to a young player would be never say no, because one learns uh, in many different ways. And uh, if you might be playing with a, with a small chamber group that plays uh, the newest of music, Mm-hmm. Unprinted manuscripts, where you learn how to uh, to read that kind of material and to try to uh, to innovate with uh, you know by discovering new pieces and and giving them a chance and see and see what develops. One can use up their time very easily. <laughs> Do you enjoy performing for, for a larger audience or a smaller audience, or what is that like for you? These works, you're, you're sitting very close to the audience. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're part of the, part of the uh, tapestry. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, it, you connect with people uh, when you can see them. And uh, 
and and then again you also some of these pieces you, you get to play with with colleagues friends uh, and you get to uh, to uh, share a performance you 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 try to enhance another player and at one point and the and the other player tries to enhance you at a different section you know mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a true uh, chamber music feeling it, and that's that's what i i, I love what about this set is that is that it's not just clarinet and piano That's one thing I like about too. Actually, every CD seems to be organized as an album in itself. Like they could have each been released individually, almost like a full recital. Do you enjoy producing recordings in one take, or do you enjoy having the chance in a stu- more studio setting to do separate takes? What they what used to happen in in sessions was that they never shut the machine off. Mm. They recorded everything from the moment they said go, and one could uh, you know go back to refer to uh, the first three minutes or something or two minutes in or so forth uh, so that uh, you didn't miss anything. Uh, I've, you know, in, in a certain sense, uh, the first time through is, is perhaps has, has a lot of uh, quality. Yeah. Other artists I've heard refer to sort of uh, kind of the magic of the first take, like it always contains the energy that you wanted. I think you know. I think in movie ma- movie makers, they say uh, Woody Allen doesn't like to to overdo. You know, so it's uh, it, maybe it's the same thing. Have you ever met him? The first time I I met him was when we were uh, recording the soundtrack for the movie Manhattan with uh, Zubin Mehta conducting uh, mm-hmm. uh, the film, and uh, he was in the audience and. Uh, you know, I played the opening, you know, and and I, I he gave me a thumbs up, you know, but but I saw him uh, a number of times after that. We met him at a at a play, an off Broadway play once, uh, and uh, he said to somebody, he must practice a lot. <laughs> <laughs> About you, he was saying. Yeah, he said yeah. that. <laughs> what he said, he must practice a lot. Yeah, I guess it was a, you know, cute stuff. So, but he he has toured as a as a clarinet player playing with the Dixieland band. I, I knew I knew Benny Goodman also. He was a very serious musician, and mm. and uh, he he was always trying to learn everything. And and he uh, he he was very meticulous in his approach to playing the clarinet. What do you mean by learn everything? Like learn all the music he heard, or he wanted to learn from. From listening, mm-hmm. from talking to people, uh, he was always trying to uh, to find out uh, 
uh, what people, what clarinet players did, mm-hmm. how they did it. And uh, it was part of his uh, learning process, you know. So speaking of learning process, I mean, you had your first orchestral job at the age of 19, or sorry, 16. And a few people know that by the time you were 19, that's actually your fourth job with the New York Phil. So what was your musical upbringing like? And how did you feel um, at that age? Well, you know, when you're that, when you're that young, uh, you know, nothing much bothers you if you if you're focused on what you're doing, but mm-hmm. I'd say uh, I was I played in any group I could get into, uh, you know, uh, community groups, amateur groups, uh, uh, and uh, I, I played with uh, in a woodwind quintet. Uh, I played uh, with the National Orchestral Association, which was a training orchestra. I went to the High School of Music and Art that had uh, six orchestras and two bands and. There was a there were rehearsals every day, and and when I uh, got the Curtis, uh, uh, it was nonstop playing. They had a great library of of every uh, piece ever written from the clarinet. And also, you know, it, it, I didn't say no to anything. Yeah. And and, and I and and I started with uh, the audition process, which. Uh, uh, which is the only way you can try, you know, to achieve some some professional spot. Do you have any advice for the the young clarinetist who's out there today auditioning for orchestras? Well, uh, I would say keep keep doing it. Uh, you know, uh, the audition process is very different today than it was in my day. In the uh, old days, if there was an, an opening to audition for, and you got and you were lucky enough to be invited. Uh, uh, you played for uh, for the conductor immediately, and the, the the way it worked usually was they would say play something, and you would play what you what you prepared or what you thought you you wanted to play uh, you know, to make an impression. Uh, then everything from that point was what they put out on the music stand for you. At that age, you could you I just, I certainly didn't have much experience with repertoire, mm-hmm. so. Everything, everything was a new piece for me, but uh, you never knew what they were going to ask. Now, in addition, uh, there was another uh, another uh, situation with, with in those days, is that even if you got hired, if they didn't like you, in a, uh, two weeks later you could be fired. There was no such thing as tenure in orchestras in those days. You you served at the at the pleasure or whim of of whoever the the conductor was. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, uh, and so what, what, what occurred, I would say, uh, uh, some people uh, would get a job and, and immediately audition for a better job. So they might stay a season here or two in one place and then go to a, a job where, they were, where the season was two weeks longer or they paid $5 more per week. Wow. Uh, so it ended. It ended up where, where you, you met the same people in various orchestras who moved on. You know, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't so organized where where uh, it is today. Of course, I, I don't think it was any any easier then or, or now. I mean, it, it, it was the same situation. You had to play for for a conductor eventually, uh, and and if they if they liked what you did, you would get a, a probationary. Uh, spot or, or today is, is very 
formalized where they they have people playing uh, for a week or two uh, uh, in in that probation uh, period and 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 also uh, uh, maybe they they're uh, invited for one concert or two concerts to to sit in and and see how that works so so it's it really uh, because it's today uh, with the major or or the close to major orchestras they there is a, there's job security there's tenure and so forth but uh, the old days they were a little different do you believe it's gone in a good direction generally yeah i i think it's 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 okay uh, you know, you're, you're not dealing with an exact science. Everybody can play the same passages. Yes. Everybody. The old days, it was one one audition uh, for a conductor, and you didn't know what he, what he was going to ask. Everything was sight reading, and there's no sight reading today. Today, everybody is told what they're going to play so they mm-hmm. can practice, which which is okay. Uh, uh, and uh, you can still find the best player in, in each system, the thing is, uh, the the seasons are long, and 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 people want to get a good spot and a good city to work in, and it, it's it's in it's the arts. How do you deal with your nerves and any advice for those who do get nervous? Well, I think if you're very young, you don't get as nervous mm-hmm. because it's not, it's not life and death. It's not desperation. Yes. Uh, I would say if uh, two people auditioned and one was 20 and the other was 40, I, I, I bet put my money on the 20 year old. That's interesting. Because it, it's, it's not life and death. Playing music Playing an instrument, you have to do it when you're very young. Mm-hmm. To start, you have to start when you're very young. You can't finish high school in four years of, of, of college and, and then start to play and, and then try to, mm-hmm. to win auditions. It doesn't work that way. You see, I saw, at, my goodness, at Curtis, they were, they were eight-year-olds fiddling away <laughs> in, in, the, in, the, in the halls, you know, and pianists that could, couldn't reach the pedals, uh, that were marvelous. You know, it's that, that's 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 what it is. It's not the, it's not exact. So the key is to start young for the nerves. The nerves are okay in a, in a way also. I mean, if if it if it stops one from uh, from from performing something, then then it's a problem. Then they then they uh, probably are in the wrong. Wrong career path, but mm. uh, everybody has has nerves. It depends. It depends on several factors. It depends who you're playing for, where you're playing it, 
and and uh, you know somebody hears is listening to you that knows everything mm -hmm. uh, supposedly you know a great maestro or a great uh, pedagogue uh, now the great pedagogues uh, some of them uh, w never made the performing careers mm -hmm. you know people you know like uh, the string people uh, Ivan Galami and Dorothy Delay they never they never made violin playing careers, mm -hmm. but they were the most sought after teachers. So, I mean, they found their, their place for talent, with talent. In the winds, uh, Leon Roshanoff uh, was that kind of a teacher. Uh, he didn't have to, to, to be a, a perfect uh, orchestral player or, or, or recitalist. I was just about to bring him up, actually. Um, what was it like working with him and what sort of impact did he have on you? Well, he was Woody Allen and, and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, the Marx Brothers all rolled into one, I thought. <laughs> uh, he, he, I would say, if I were to describe him, I would say he was very New York. His studio was at 1595 Broadway, corner of 48th Street. Wow. You couldn't get more New York than that. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was great. A man who, who was serious but had a, had a great hum uh, sense of humor and... Uh, and uh, and uh, drive, and, and uh, he gave to his students. As far as Rushnoff, like this was a listener question, actually. And the question is, what kind of students did he take, and what were some of his teaching methods that, that you experienced? Almost everybody around is, did take some lessons with him, mm -hmm. some for longer periods. And, and uh, he, he, uh, he worked with people in an individual way. Mm -hmm. he, 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 he was, uh, I guess he, he had a great vision, you know, uh, understanding of, of human nature and, and uh, personalities. Uh, so he, he could draw out of each individual uh, student uh, what they could actually come up with. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he was, uh, I would say... Uh, he he was he was not the kind of teacher that that uh, presented uh, a, a curriculum that, that was the same for everybody. He would he would write studies for a specific person, uh, uh, have him work on that, uh, and uh, and have works uh, works that uh, they could handle or, or not handle, uh, as the case may be. He never made anybody. Uh, feel uh, inferior. Mm -hmm. One of his early students was Jimmy Hamilton, who was the clarinet soloist with Duke Ellington's band for, wow. for many, many years. And we, in fact, I remember a student recital in New York in, in, the, in the 40s, early 40s, uh, uh, where uh, it, it was, I played in that as a little kid. I played a couple of pieces that the Bellison had transcribed uh, he picked the pieces for me, and Rushnoff did. And uh, uh, Jimmy Hamilton was one of the people in in the program. He played he played the uh, the Debussy Rhapsody. He was you know he was a talented uh, player. I'll tell you. And so he, people from various uh, uh, worlds in music came to him. Uh, uh, doublers, uh, people that uh, that had different uh, different talents
you've recorded so much music. When, when you look back, is there anything that particularly stands out as your favorite outside of the stuff that's included here on the Heritage Collection? The cycles of things we recorded, you know, complete Sibelius uh, uh, symphonies, the complete Schumann, the complete Beethoven Brahms, you know, the Mahler. Uh, we made uh, two, two uh, full uh, sets of, of those, uh, you know, some years apart. And, uh, uh, I, I, you know, there, some of this, I would say some of the recordings we made uh, uh, with Pierre Boulez, uh, which uh, I, I really uh, love doing those. He did complete uh, Mother Goose, complete Daphne and Chloe, not just the two suites, uh, complete Petrushka. Just the amount of recording we did with Leonard Bernstein was amazing. I mean, they, they were re- recording constantly. There was some great uh, stuff being done. What was it like looking back on working with Bernstein, Boulez, all these? Well, they, they, everybody came with their own likes, mm-hmm. it, musically, I speak, musically speaking. You know, yeah. you think of a Bruno Walter, who was the, uh, an assistant to, to Mahler, uh, for him to do, a, to do a Mahler symphonies. And, and of course, the classics, because that's his, his era. And Stokowski... Uh, uh, you know, with his uh, reseeding and doubling and quadrupling of solo lines mm-hmm. in winds, uh, uh, very unique. Uh, Metropolis, uh, uh, he he would rehearse without score. Wow! I remember I, we did uh, we did Wozzeck of Berg uh, in five rehearsals, and then the then the performances four performances and then we recorded it uh, he never used the score in the rehearsals he even knew the rehearsal numbers wow i mean that's i mean that but he had that kind of a brain you know uh, every, so i say that, that all of these maestros they came with with what material that they liked uh, george sell who was a music advisor in between the uh, after bernstein you know uh, he was a classicist that had the the great nineteenth uh, century repertoire in his you know it, it, it was it was great and Boulez of course nobody was greater in the contemporary music uh, in the uh, in his ability to uh, conduct the most difficult patterns rhythmically uh, uh, perfectly and and uh, one rhythm in one hand another rhythm in another hand at the mm. same time and the perform the performances were, were were never psyched out because he conducted the most difficult places the same way he did the easy places. So he was like uh, amazing that way. And, and of course, uh, like every one of the I I I played for nine uh, music directors, and uh, and I don't know how many guest conductors there, are countless, and. Uh, they, they all had something. That Zubin Meter was was amazing with repertoire, courageous, and the, probably the best accompanist for a concerto soloist, uh, and and uh, spirit, great spirit. And Court uh, Mazur came from the Leipzig tradition. He was uh, he was a, a classicist, and his his I would say. The music he loved the most were the choral choral works. Mm. Matthew Passion, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
Beethoven, Misa Solemnis, you know, the, the Brahms Requiem. It, it, choral works were, were, were something I, he relished. Lauren uh, Mazel was, was, you know, had one leg in each era, you know. He, had, he came from the previous era into the new, and, and he, here is another guy that had uh, the technique. A great uh, uh, way of uh, of uh, individually uh, uh, doing the, the works that he liked, and he was a terrific violinist. Besides, we did the least one that sold that for a week when he was a guest conductor. He played the violin oh, wow. uh, in you know for the seven instruments, yes. the uh, the history of a soldier, and he played the, from memory. He played the violin solo and conducted with his bow. Wow! When he was playing. I mean, so you know these kind of things show show up. Metropolis, way back, uh, would play would play a piano concerto. You know, uh, Lenny Bernstein, he he played concertos conducting from the piano. As an artist in the position of an orchestral musician, of course, you have to kind of adapt to the director or the conductor that's there for that rehearsal, right? Um, Absolutely, but but you know. We were very lucky in New York. We got the best that that was that the world said was the best. Was there one conductor that you not only felt that did a great job, but that also you identified the most with their sort of musical realization? It's a collaboration. You, there's a there's a lot of eye contact. I say that the best the best performances come with great eye contact, player and conductor. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I I don't know if that would work with. Uh, with Von Karajan, who kept his eyes closed, but there uh, has to be contact. He, one can't play with his head down into the music. You have to relate to what you see in front of you. Mm-hmm. That, that to me, is, is, the, is one of the most important uh, uh, things for a player to realize. Is there any pieces in here that you feel that a younger version of yourself would have played differently or that you would have played differently had you played them today? And uh, I ask because one of the things I think about is, is I remember Glenn Gould when he performed his original Goldberg variations and then record the same thing about 30 years later, it was a totally unrecognizable. um, (laughs) It was, it was completely different, you know? So I'm wondering how would Stanley Drucker have played these pieces today versus yesterday? I'm not sure. I think I think in some of them, uh, uh, maybe uh, maybe a little more thoughtful, a little more uh, careful. Maybe uh, maybe some of the tempos might be a little slower. It, it dep- because you know uh, you you think maybe it's, you you give it a little more gravitas. 
you know, uh, where it, where when you're very young, somebody tells you put it put that mouthpiece in your mouth and play <laughs> it, it, without thinking, you know, and and that's that's what you do. That's why I, I get back to what I said. You have to really start young, uh, in in the, and uh, if you're lucky, uh, lightning can strike. Uh, people say, oh, this is the ideal tone. There is no ideal tone. It's the tone you hear in your in your head and your soul. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody's tone is different, you know. Uh, it uh, there is a middle of the road the situation where, uh, you know, where basically you're not going to sound that nobody's going to sound that different. Uh, they they look they they uh, years ago when I was a kid the, there weren't so many recordings to to listen to. Mm -hmm. uh, the you know, the only uh, clarinet player recording was uh, Reginald Kell. We were lucky for that because he made some some great uh, recordings of the Brahms and Beethoven and Mozart trios and the and the Brahms quintet he made in 1937 with the Bush Quartet and and uh, and other lighter pieces. I mean, it, it, he uh, he showed a, a side of clarinet that we didn't we weren't aware of. Where, where the stiff, uh, regimented kind of playing uh, seemed to uh, uh, to predominate uh, in a certain sense, where everything had to be uh, four square, and uh, and he he showed a, a, he showed a, a rubato mm -hmm. that uh, that uh, was very personal, and uh, and uh, it had a it, it really had a, a soul and beauty. Uh, now a lot of people didn't like his sound. Uh, they 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 said they they he used uh, an excessive uh, excessive vibrato. Well, it, it, maybe he maybe he did, but it was what he what he heard and what he wanted to express. Uh, now, even the so-called uh, icons of the past, uh, Ralph McLean, he he I heard it. I, I, when I was at the Curtis, I, I attended every rehearsal of the Philadelphia Orchestra, and he used a hell of a lot of vibrato. Let me tell you, uh, it went from a from a note that had a lot of vibrato to to a straight note, and then back. Mm -hmm. It was not, a, not like a flute constant vibrato. Yeah. It was to emphasize something, but of course the, it was a different. He played in the Great Hall and Academy of Music. He never had to play louder than mezzo piano. Yeah, uh, and uh, he was always in the quality zone, but uh, today uh, they say it's his, uh, you know, a beautiful sound, but uh, it was uh, it was uh, very focused. Mm -hmm. It wasn't dark, or, uh, or you know, or uh, wide. Mm -hmm. But look, everything is everything works. I mean, the, uh, it, it it depends on the on the individual. There's the ideal. You have to decide what, as a student, you have to decide what you want to sound like. But the, but right or wrong, there is no right or wrong. <laughs> it's a wrong note, and there's a wrong style. I'll put it that way. There is there you know, if if a piece has to have a certain motion to it, and you're playing it like 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 it's uh, gone out of style, you know, it, it, that's that's I would call that a, a wrong. But uh, other other than that, there there is no right or wrong. But if you're in an orchestra, the the the, the person on the podium uh, rec making requests is right, and you have to try to do what what they do. That's what the if you're in a if you're in a quintet 
everybody has has their own voice to speak. Mm-hmm. So string quartet, woodwind quintet, you you can speak. A solo recital, you can speak. Orchestrally, you you have to fit. Like I said, you have to enhance somebody at one point, and then a person has to enhance you at another point. And then, then the, those are the best orchestral players. You know, you said something really interesting a minute ago, and that was that, um, you know, when you were growing up, there wasn't all that many recordings. And I would say nowadays, it's funny because a lot of the, certainly not all of the recordings that I, I have, but a lot of them are, would have been recorded during your time um, with the, the orchestra. And in a way, I think that young ki- kids nowadays, especially the youngest of kids, they have almost the opposite problem. There's there's so many recordings that they're not even sure which ones to listen to sometimes. And if you were to search any orchestral piece on YouTube, in addition to the many commercial recordings available, there would be hundreds of just sort of random performances. So looking back on that, did you feel the the gravity of, of these recordings at the time, knowing how many people they would influence, influence and, and how do you listen to music now? How do you decide where to put your... Well, you know, you know, you, you hear a good orchestra, a great orchestra and and and, uh, and an equally great conductor mm-hmm. uh, you know you can search out the best of those uh, of course one doesn't listen to a recording just because they want to hear a bassoon solo played by uh, Mr. Bassoon you know <laughs> and uh, though uh, I would say uh, if you have if you're that focused and you want certain uh, player and then you get even if the orchestra isn't as good you you go for it mm-hmm. but uh, uh, I think uh, there, there's uh, listening to different performances is uh, very important it gives you a, a frame of mind certain pieces uh, uh, have have prominent solos for, for, for your for your instrument clarinet and uh, and uh, it's a good idea to hear, uh, you know, a couple of different uh, styles of, of how how the Rachmaninoff Second Symphony solo is played, or or, or the opening of Tchaikovsky Fifth, or, or things like you know Shostakovich symphonies. Uh, you you get a, you get a feeling for it, and uh, uh, so I would say uh, it's a listening game. Mm-hmm. Uh, you listen, uh, and and uh, if you if you like a certain style of playing or a certain sound, uh, uh, it's very hard to put into words teaching sound. Very hard to do that. Uh, it's uh, it's it's because it's 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 listening. So uh, you you can only say I like this or I like that. Uh, but you have to decide what you like. What do you like? You hear a sound. You play. You play a few notes. You like that sound. You like it. And and you and they say, I don't like it. What don't you like about it? If, if I'm speaking of a, sim, a, a person evaluating themselves, mm-hmm. and and uh, see if it's if they in the teaching situation. You can say, what don't you like about that? Try this. Try that. 
because uh, you know it's not an exact measured science. Mm-hmm. Sound is very personal. Uh, you know, you, you listen to the, the the great violinists of the past. Joseph Sigetti didn't sound like like Yehudi Menuhin or uh, or Milstein uh, didn't sound like uh, you know somebody else. It's it's they all had their own sound. Uh, then and not one of them was right and the other one wrong. That's the they're, unfortunate they're all right. thing. <laughs> they're all right. They're all right. Everyone is right. I said, what's wrong is maybe a wrong note. Mm-hmm. Even that's open the question, and, and, or uh, a ro- or a wrong style. So playing the clarinet is not uh, is such a mystery. The most important thing is to is is to have something to say musically. I'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your wonderful memories and stories with us. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we switch over to your wonderful wife, Naomi, for a little more conversation? Well, uh, I wish everybody success in their, in their careers and, and uh, uh, just uh, love music and love clarinet. And uh, thank you to everybody. Uh, I, I always try to do my best and and uh, I feel I've I've had a I've had an interesting career, and uh, I'm I'm happy to hear the new players, and wish them great musical success. Thank you, Stanley, for for all the great music over the years, and of course also this wonderful new collection which we can enjoy. You, you've touched the lives of so many clarinetists, and and I expect that this set will will really live on and and touch the lives of many more. Well, I hope people get a chance to hear it because. Uh, Uh, I'm very proud of it. Absolutely. We'll make sure it gets out there. (laughs) Thank you so much, Stanley. Thank you. At this point in the conversation, I turned the mic over to Stanley's wife, Naomi, who is an accomplished clarinetist in her own right. They spent a lot of time collaborating over the years, and this Heritage Collection actually features one piece per disc of them playing music together. 
After a brief introduction back and forth, I got started right away wanting to learn more about her time studying also with Leon Rushinov. So you, of course, also studied with Leon Rushinov. I did, yes. But I had several uh, very famous teachers before him. Uh, I lived on Long Island, and another and a famous composer, Gustav Langenus, lived on Long Island also. And I went to his house to uh, to take clarinet lessons. And I, every week, he was putting those uh, uh, Langenus duets together as duets, and um, we played them together. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was terrific. Uh, um, I also learned to drive the car while going to his house. I was 15 years old. <laughs> <laughs> there, were, there were hardly any cars on the road where he lived, so it, it was fine. And I had a very brave mother. <laughs> <laughs> she knew when to say, slow up! <laughs> so just to get back to that, the, the meeting Gustav Langenus was, was wonderful. He was very kind and I was always prepared with uh, whatever material he had given me because I loved doing that. Um, and I, I also studied with Clark Brody, mm-hmm. another uh, professional player and teacher. But he was very boring, and uh, I got out of that. <laughs> I got out of that as soon as I could. Uh, my father was um, a musician, uh, an automotive automobile mechanic, uh, saxophone clarinet player, and he taught me to count. So we, we would sit together with the music and I would count one and two and three e and a four and one, you know, whatever it yeah. was. And how old were you? I was 12. And that, that was, you know, what a, what a happier way could you learn to play? Yeah. He was wonderful. Wonderful teacher, wonderful man. What are some takeaways from your time with Rushinov? Well, rushing off, it was always fun, you know. Uh, I remember the first the first lesson I took with him, I got really dressed up rather fancy in a suit and high heel shoes <laughs> and went to that studio and, uh, you know, chatted and so forth. And uh, he said, well, let me hear you play something. So I took off, I took off my high heel shoes. And he said, baby, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) You can't play in high heel shoes. (laughs) Great story. And uh, I can't remember how many years I studied with him, but it it was a good number of years. And I I met Stanley there and many musicians. It was terrific. Is that how you guys met? Yes, met at, at at that studio. Yeah. I was in the uh, Stanley Drucker fan club. <laughs> there were many people studying with Rushinov and we yes. all knew each other and it was a very nice situation. So I've got to ask, what, what was it like working together within the dynamic of your marriage in, in a musical sense? Well, uh, it was fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I was a player yeah. and... Uh, <laughs> And we played together for fun, you know. So, well, yeah. well, what do we do? We were married and, you know, at this point and uh, in a wonderful marriage. And, uh, you know, when dishes were done and 
dinner was over or whatever. And we said, well, let's, let's go play some duets. I always, always enjoy playing the Langinus duets. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very fine. Very fine. So there's never any sort of disagreements or how did you handle those sort of things if they would come up? And, and I guess to be fair, I should have asked this of Stanley as well to give him a chance. <laughs> you make it sound too complicated. <laughs> it's, it is not complicated. It's very simple. It's musicians getting together to play. <laughs> married, not married, doesn't matter. <laughs> there, was, there was an experience. We were, we were in, in Japan in a performance uh, Stanley and I, and uh, and this, you know, you think the Japanese is being very, very careful about what they say. This person said to me, over the over the microphone, "Who plays better, you <laughs> or your husband?" <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> and <laughs> it, of course, it, this was this uh, was asked in Japanese and. And and I had a, a earbud in it where I, so I heard the translation. Yes, and and uh, the audience heard it in Japanese, of course. She was sitting off. Naomi was sitting off to the side, and uh, she she saw a funny look come on my face, and and the audience started to laugh a little. So the, the translation came. <laughs> it, you know who plays better, you or or your uh, your wife or your wife. <laughs> and uh, the answer was, her father thinks she does. <laughs> well, now, wh- yeah. When was this? When did well, this happen? It, it was in the seventies. Oh, okay, you've been to Japan a lot of times uh, on tours, but uh, this was an early one of the early ones. Mm-hmm. What a great story. We, we toured uh, and played uh, the recital, and, the, and I gave a class in, the, in 11 cities. Wow. And one of the performances was with, with an orchestra uh, and a string quartet, and, and we played the, uh, we played the Poulenc Sonata for two clarinets at that concert. I do, I do remember uh, after one concert in, in Japan, there were two, two brave girls waiting backstage and they wanted to, they touched me. They touched my shoulder. Oh, wow. They wanted to know I was real. Naomi, do you have any interesting stories from being backstage at a concert? I met Aaron Copeland, who was walking down the same hall I was. Wow. And I told him that my 12-year-old daughter, uh, that he was my 12-year-old daughter's favorite composer. <laughs> and I tell you, what a great smile I got from him. <laughs> So, Naomi, you're also a very accomplished teacher. Um, where did you teach and, and for how long? I taught at Hofstra uh, University for 50 years and uh, loved being a teacher and always had students coming to the house in a private situation. What is the main thing you like to instill upon your students? I mean, you mentioned that Rushinov sort of um, you found it to be a happy time. You enjoyed the lessons. And do you, do you like to right. cr- recreate that environment for your students or do you? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, a wrong note is not a, not, is not, will never shake up the world, you know, try it a little slower. Let's, let's, let's look at it together. You know, let's count the music together. That sort of, that sort of teaching. I love that. I taught from the handicapped and, uh, and to the, uh, you know, challenged, uh, mentally challenged, mm-hmm. and to the most most skilled and uh, talented uh, students. 
and uh, enjoyed every one of them. And I never made anybody cry. Not once? <laughs> Not once. <laughs> <laughs> How many students would you say had the pleasure of working with you over those years? Oh, my goodness. Many? Oh, yes. Many, many, many. I have 60, 60 students maybe, you know, 50 students over the years. I, I, I certainly didn't keep count. But I hear from students. I used to hear from more of them some years ago, but I still hear occasionally from, from a former student. That's just great. Well, Naomi, I, I really want to thank you today also for taking the time to speak with me. It's been it's such a pleasure. And I hope that many, many people have the chance to listen to these recordings on the Heritage Collection. In the room there before we go is Jerome Bunke, who is not only the producer of this record or the series of CDs, I guess, but um, he will be having an interview with me on the next episode of the Clarinet podcast to discuss his fascinating career as a clarinetist and, and producer uh, in his own right. Um, before we go, Jerome, though, is there anything you'd like to add today to, to our discussion? Well, first, thank you for that and for everyone for, for making the arrangements. But as producer, one thing that really um, made me feel very, very uh, gratified was your uh, recognizing that each one of these discs could exist on its own mm -hmm. and that it had the feeling of a recital within itself because to go and end up being able to form a, a program. Yes. In the choices and, and putting this all together was really, really a, a, a challenge. And hearing from you, no, you know, I, I really feel that uh, that I have uh, a, a lot of feedback that, that I've accomplished that goal. Well, and I do feel that both for Naomi and, and Stanley there, I think that you guys deserve huge credit for these performances and the fact that, and it's a compliment, that many clarinetists going forward here are definitely going to be basing their sort of foundations for future recitals on these recordings for many years to come. So it's a huge achievement. I think you should be very proud of it. And I'm, I'm so happy to have had the chance to, to listen. Th thank you. And we look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. For detailed show notes, head to www.clarinet.com. If you find that you enjoy the show, please consider making a small monthly contribution on Patreon to support its ongoing production. Depending on your level of support, you'll get access to bonus content, early episodes presented in high-resolution audio, live hangouts, and more. To learn more, visit clarinet.com and click on the Patreon link. Be sure to tune in next time for a conversation with Jerome Bunke, who of course was the producer on the Heritage Collection, which we discussed in this episode, but is also an extremely accomplished clarinetist in his own right. Jerome and I had a really great conversation, and I look forward to sharing it next week. Today's episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Diderio Woodwinds. Thank you so much for listening. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. <laughs>